And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. I'm no Myra, but join me in prayer. <laughs> Lord, just thank you for this beautiful day, God, that how the seasons change. Uh, you're always faithful. You're always good, Lord. And we just thank you for this time, this season, where um, our believing friends, non-believing friends, everyone just shares joy, Lord, and this joy that people have in their heart. And God, I just pray that we we have that every day, and we have the joy in you and the peace in God, just the comfort we have in knowing you, that you are the light in our darkness, and God, you raise people, dead people to life, Lord. It's truly amazing, and I just thank you for that hope that we have in you, and in this beautiful service, and be with us the rest of this day. Thank you for your provisions for us, and just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning, and um, no kids to dismiss. The kids should already be upstairs. Parents, if you did keep your kids in for worship, you can take them upstairs at, at any point. And um, as always, we, um, we welcome kids in the service, but we want to be intentional in our ministry to them. And so we have intentional times of kids' ministry during the service. And for right now, in order to um, save some seats in the room, we're having the kids' ministry uh, for the length of the service. They actually do have worship. They have some music, some song leaders up there that will be rotating to uh, lead them in some songs on Sunday mornings too. But thank you for being here. Um, I, I want to give you just a brief update. Anytime we're here and I have an update on our situation with where we're worshiping and the building over there, I'll, I'll give it to you as far as what I know. And what I know right now is we've had several contractors come out. We're working through a process with, with insurance and remediation and getting the building clean, getting some things repaired. And uh, right now we don't have a firm timetable. Most likely any sort of cleaning and repair will start in January and will be at least a month-long process, probably more like six weeks. And so there's a chance we might be back in the main building um, for worship in um, the end of February, but we're just planning for March right now, and uh, we're going to continue in prayer. We want this to be done the right way. Um, we want to, to go through the process with patience. And you know what? If y'all keep singing like you did this morning, we might as well just stay out here because it's, it's really fun to be um, in close proximity. Last week, uh, I probably had five or six different people come up to me after either the 915 or the 1030 service and say, I met people I've never met before. I sat by people I've never sat by before. I, the, like the shakeup was a good thing because it required me to interact with somebody else. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ as um, different body parts. And the eye would never say to the hand, I don't need you. And in this season of time, the body parts are being all mixed up. And sometimes you're right next to a different body part than what you would sit next to over there. And that's a good thing. Say hello. Introduce yourself. We've had several new families come into the church over the last season of time. And so it's a great way for us to meet people. And, and it's a good reminder for all of us, and, and this is a challenge I'll give you, um, you're not spectators here this morning. You're worshipers, and you're members of a body, and so the goal is never for me to be teacher and you to be learner, or for me and the worship team to, to perform, certainly not, and you spectate. The goal is for us to be a body of Christ working together. So collaboratively, we are worshiping. 
the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the risen Savior, but also we're functioning as the body in every interaction we have. And so from, from the parking lot, from the time we enter the parking lot till the time we leave the parking lot, we are the assembled church, the gathered church. And therefore, you see somebody you don't know, that's a priority to figure out who that person is and to engage them in conversation, introduce yourself and show them the love of Christ. And, um, and if you see somebody you haven't seen in a while, and you say, hey, well, where have you been? Well, I've been at 9.15, I've been at 10.30. You know what, let's figure that out. Let's check on them, see how they're doing. Um, this is really going to, this is a different season for us. It's a little bit of a shakeup, and we already had one of those two years ago with everything from COVID. But with all of the reactions to COVID and all of the aftermath, we've been gathered in the same room less often. We've been more separated, more spread out. And let's take advantage of this season to really engage together, to love each other well, to communicate well with each other. And so, like I said, this is probably going to be our worship setting for a couple of months. And March at the earliest, we'll be back in place over there. But we're going to trust that God's doing something in our midst over here. And God has, has a purpose and plan for us in this whole um, process that we're going through. Um, I will tell you, though, uh, ministry moves on. And tonight we will have our caroling night. Um, and that is if you are caroling, meet at the church at 6 o'clock. And yet, unless you are a youth or a youth leader, then you meet at the church at 545. And the youth are actually going to be a little bit different than everybody else in the calendar for tonight. So if you're a youth or a youth leader, you meet at 545, you go carol as a group, and then the youth are coming back here to do their Christmas party. But the rest of us, and any of you, are welcome to join. At 6 o'clock, we're going to gather in the church parking lot. We're going to go in groups to different families in the church and families that are connected to the church in some way, and we're going to go and we're going to sing carols um, in, in driveways and in front yards and, and things like that. And so you're all welcome. Um, now, I will say, we want to have some sort of general idea. Some people have actually signed up and said, hey, we're coming. If you plan to come tonight and you haven't told anyone, tell Jason before you leave and just say, Jason, my family of five, we're going to be here tonight, just so we have some level of rough estimate of who's showing up and how we can divide groups so we can um, hit all of these houses that we've committed to and sing and bring the joy of the, the baby born in a manger that is the risen king. So hope you'll join us for that tonight. Also, next Sunday night is our bluegrass Christmas night. That will be here in this room. So come ready to sing. There'll be some coffee and some desserts set up at the bar back there. So come and join us for that. Um, next Sunday morning, we are going to be packing bags for the Whitfield County Jail. Many of you know that we've done this before uh, a few times. Um, and uh, right now, so the Whitfield County Jail Chaplain, Richard Steele, is a member of our congregation. And before COVID, he would go in to the jail, and some women in our church would also go into the women's side, and have weekly services to the men and women, ministering, preaching the gospel, singing hymns, things like that. Uh, that still is not happening in the gym because of COVID restrictions. But we have an opportunity to deliver presence into the, into the jail and to bring the light of Christ and the hope of the gospel into that facility. Richard will tell me that he's had more Bible requests over the last two years than any other period in his ministry. He tells me that in every cell block, there are believers that are ministering to others within the jail. So there is, the Holy Spirit is at work amongst those that are, that are in brokenness in the jail. And so we want to help. We want to serve. And so next Sunday, during both services, we are going to be packing bags in the gymnasium right over there. And so if you plan to come at 1030 for worship next Sunday, I would encourage you, come at 915 to pack some bags in the gym and then join us for worship at 1030. Or come for worship at 915 and pack some bags at 1030. And we'll need some actual, some more volunteers. We have some hosts already in place that are going to be hosting during the service and giving some instruction. If you would like to be out there and, and get some preparation beforehand and say, so you kind of know what's going on and you can help other people figure out, please let me know because we'll need some table hosts to sort of help keep things moving and keep things organized. Um, but last, um, last year, when there was no um, chapel ministry going on in the jail, we made the decision this was a really big priority for us. And we, I, we've done it probably four or five times. Last year, the response we received from inmates that mailed letters to the church to say thank you 
uh, to speak about how encouraged they were by it. I, I should have brought them. I, I read them in a service in January or February of this year. Um, but I'll send some of those out via email just as a reminder to encourage you all to, to really pray for this initiative and be a part of the packing um, next Sunday. So that is happening during both services um, next week. Um, also, several of you have asked, uh, in, the, in all of this aftermath of the fire and worshiping in a different setting, how can I help? One concrete way that you can help is we now need more greeters and, and more people to sit at, at the desk to greet visitors and give people information about the church. So if you just want to open a door, shake a hand, say hello, help people figure out where they're going, we need more people to do that important type of ministry because now we, we're, we, we doubled our services and uh, earlier before at the 915 service, we just didn't have a large group of people so it wasn't a, a need to have greeters. But now we have people coming to the front building, people coming to the back building. We need greeters in both places during both services. So if that is something that you would like to help with, that's one um, concrete way you can help in this season of time. Um, the other thing that um, many of you have um, know and, and have asked about is um, how we are closing the year in our budget. And this is December. And in December, we always, as elders, are having these these deep budget conversations as we plan for 2022. Many of you know that we didn't start out, we didn't approve the 2021 budget with a plan for, um, for a kids director position to be separate from a youth pastor. We had a family pastor position in the budget for 2021. We stepped out in faith in response to an opportunity that God put in front of us, and we have seen the growth as a result. There, there's no question God has blessed both of those ministries, both the youth and kids ministry over the last six months. Um, but we're still stepping out in faith um, next year to, to see what God is doing in us. So I, I would encourage you in two things. Number one, continue to give faithfully to the church. You are a very generous church, and we praise you for that, and more on that in a minute. Um, but number two, pray for us as elders as we're going through. This is always just a very important season of time, to hear from God in what he is going to be doing in us over the next year ahead. We have new opportunities for ministry every single year. We have new connections, new families coming in. We want to be good stewards of the opportunities that God puts in front of us. Now, on the generosity thing, yes, we want you to give to the general ministry of the church. And, and in fairness, I, I'll be honest, we are a little bit behind our projections for this year. So prayerfully, please, give towards the general fund. But no, this year has been an incredible year of generosity for this church in special funds as well. Uh, many of you remember that um, our missions project earlier in the year was to provide grain to West Africa for famine relief. And with that grain that was provided came the message of the gospel as it was real believers, genuine disciples of Jesus who we have sponsored for many years and some of us have met in person. And these people are the real deal. And they were delivering grain and the gospel um, through the generosity of this church, $20,000 earlier this year, we, we gave towards that need, and that work continues. Um, we also, um, just on uh, Friday of this week, I was thanked again by the director of the Grace and Joy House, ran, out, ran into him out in the community, and he thanked me again to say thank you for the incredible generosity you shared with us in helping to fund a um, a kid's playground. It's still in process over there. They don't have it up yet. They're working on fencing issues, and then the playground comes, but he still is just blown away by this church's generosity. Just thank me again on Friday for it. More recently, though, $40,000 was given by this church to serve the Moyer family with the purchase of a, of a van, a wheelchair-accessible van, and we actually have a picture of the van they were able to purchase this week. Is that the picture? Do you have the picture with the family? You just have the van? Oh. We have a picture with the family, too. We'll send that out to you guys. I'm sorry. That's the wrong picture, but it's okay. Um, but 2019, um, an amazing opportunity for them. Um, I, I ran into them at Fiddleheads yesterday. They were getting pictures with Santa. And um, a beautiful vehicle. It was cool to see Joshua strapped in in there and to see Connor in the, in the back having a great time. So... Thank you all for your great generosity with, um, with the church, but also with the Moyer family as um, uh, they were loving their new van this weekend. Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to ask another hard question. The question that we um, started out with a couple weeks ago, um, we started out by questioning Christmas and asking, you know, if, if Jesus has come to bring hope, joy, and peace, um, why is there still so much suffering? Why is there still so much evil? And then uh, last week we asked the question of, can we really trust and believe what the Bible says? Aren't there contradictions? Aren't there discrepancies? So we talked about that last week, and we said, no, no, no. We trust that, that the word of God is the word of God, that the gospel message is true. And the four gospels tell the story a little differently at times, but ultimately tell the same one single story of the one true um, Christ who was born, um, raised, and, and then died and rose again for us. Today, the question is, is this really the only way? And, you know, we live in an age in which there's different versions of the truth that get thrown out. And, the, and it's popular to, to put a qualifier on the word truth and to say, well, you have your truth, I have my truth. You have, in, in the same way that you might say, you have your belief, I have my belief. We've, we've gone bananas in that, to go to a different level and say, actually, and, and sometimes even Christians. Y'all, I was in a conversation with a brother in Christ not too long ago in which we were talking about a complicated issue. And, and he actually looked at me and said, I understand what you're saying, but that's your truth. My truth is this. I thought, wow, how do we even have the ground for a conversation if we have different versions of the truth? But, you know, the truth is each of us have different perspectives and sometimes see things from, from different angles and, and have to figure out where is the real truth in the midst of all of the different ideas, debates of our day, we seem to have different options for what we could believe about God. Uh, even on our street, we have multiple options on Doug Gap Road of what view of God we could accept and receive, what view of God we could use to, to worship. And, and one of the things about technology and globalism and the world that we live in today, we know more about what other cultures believe and do than ever before in human history. We know more about alternative views of God than, that are different than the Christian view of God. And so with that comes this claim that Christians are arrogant. That's what the world says. The world says we're arrogant to say things like Jesus is the only way. We're arrogant to say things like Christmas is about the Savior of the world. And is it true, though? That's the question. Because the, the claim of the exclusivity of Jesus is one of those things that we get criticized as Christians for the most do we really believe that this tribe in the Amazon that has no written language, that doesn't know who Jesus is, do we really believe that their only hope for salvation is Jesus, the Messiah of Israel that was born in a manger and then raised and lived a life, was, died as a traitor to Rome? Do we really believe that he rose again and he's the only way for a tribe in the Amazon or a tribe in Africa to receive life and life eternal. Yeah, we, we believe that. That's what we say as Christians. But, you know, the reality of it is, if we really believe that, that shapes everything that we think about every other human being in the world. If we really believe that Jesus is who the Gospels reveal him to be, if we really do believe Jesus is the one way, that Jesus is, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If we believe that the God of all nations was placed in a manger after birth and then died and rose again for the salvation of all who believe, then every person we see, every person we meet, is created in the image of God with a divine purpose to give glory to the creator God and is either going the right way or the wrong way, is either living in the light or living in the darkness, is either on their path towards righteousness and eternal life in heaven or on the path towards condemnation in hell. It changes the way we look at every human being around us, every server, every clerk at a store, every person we see on the side of the road, every driver that makes us mad with gets a little bit of road rage going up. Maybe that's just me, maybe it's not you, I don't know. But it changes the way we view everybody. So we gotta answer this question. Is this for real? Is this the truth that God really is the God of all nations, the God of Israel, Yahweh, 
the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua, that they are the only path towards life and salvation for all. We're going to pick that question up with the story of the wise men from Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We're basically going to go Matthew 2, Ephesians 2, Philippians 2, with a little bit of Isaiah 6 and 9 thrown in there. I, I looked for something in Isaiah 2, and it just didn't fit. So Matthew 2, Isaiah 6, 9, Ephesians 2, and Philippians 2. It's a lot for today. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the question, is Jesus the God of the wise men? Because they're not Israelites. So that's right there in the Christmas story. If we can answer that question, then it goes a long way towards answering the question of, is Jesus really the true God for everyone? But then, so we'll answer the question, is Jesus the God of the wise men? Then we'll also look at the scandal of the claim of exclusivity. We'll look at the, the, the way the world sees that as a scandalous claim. And then I'm going to show you that I think actually the real scandal is not the exclusivity of Jesus, but the incarnation of Jesus in Philippians 2. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now before Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when, the, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. First question, who are these guys? Who are the wise men? Where did they come from? Well, the wise men are most likely astronomers or really astrologers from Babylon or Persia. From the east, they, they, they traveled a great distance. But you know, the thing that's interesting about the wise men is the book of Daniel gives us some insight into who they probably were and where they came from. Because if you remember, the book of Daniel doesn't say anything about these guys that came to worship. But the book of Daniel does say something about wise men. And actually, the descriptor wise men in Matthew chapter 2 is not men who were wise, but actually a class of people known as magi. Magi, which is like magicians or astrologers or sorcerers even. And in different contexts, it might have meant different things. But we know that Daniel was put into that same group of people in the book of Daniel. So it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see what the nation of Babylon did, the ancient empire of Babylon, when they defeated a foreign nation, they would try to absorb the learning and the wisdom of that nation. So they would take some young men that were well-educated, that were from noble families, and they would bring them into this group of people known as the wise men or the magi, and they would learn from these people and teach them more things. And they would take the books. They would save the books. The Old Testament scriptures were not just completely destroyed when Babylon destroyed and conquered Jerusalem. But rather, they took some of these copies of the scriptures. They took them back to Babylon. And people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were both trained in Babylonian religion and philosophy and were able to expose the Babylonian wise men to the wisdom of Israel. That's what they did. And I use wisdom in scare quotes because they did that for every nation. It wasn't Babylon uniquely trying to figure out about Yahweh as the one true God. It was Babylon trying to absorb the wisdom of every nation on the earth. They, in their military conquest, saw that there was some level of value 
in the education, the learning, and the wisdom of these cultures that they were defeating. So they didn't want to just decimate those cultures. They wanted to absorb a little bit of it. And so the book of Daniel explains to us how this category of people came to exist in Persia or, or Babylon. And it also tells us where they may have gotten some of the scriptures. That's a good explanation for us. In fact, I, I can tell you with some level of certainty, and most Bible scholars would agree with this, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men, that whole story depends upon the Babylonian exile. If Babylon doesn't come in, conquer Jerusalem, move exiles back to Babylon with them, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men don't show up. Because that's how the books got there. That's how the scriptures got there. That's how these foreigners were able to read and learn the truth of the true God or the true king of Israel that was going to be born. What exactly did they read? I don't know. But I know that Numbers 24, 17, from a really surprising source, Numbers 24, 17. One of, I mean, there's some, there's a lot of good prophets. Um, there's, a, there's a couple bad prophets. Balaam, he's not the greatest prophet. Balaam is a prophet for hire, and Balaam says what you pay him to say, in a sense. And then Balaam actually is the guy that gets corrected by his own donkey along the road. But by the time Balaam actually gets it right, in 2417, this is what Balaam says. Balaam says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a scepter meaning a king, shall rise out of Israel. And so now, that generations later, these wise men in Persia are reading something, and they find something in Hebrew scriptures to connect a new king with a, an exceptional star. And they were astrologers. They were watching the stars every day, and they saw this new exceptional star rise up over the land of Jacob, the land of Israel. And they connected it and said, that's what that star means. That star means there's a new king. There's a new king in Israel. And that's why they show up. And where do they go? They go to the capital city, Jerusalem. At that point, uh, Israel was not its own nation. It was a province of the, the Roman Empire. But there was a king that actually worked under Caesar. So it's confusing, but all through the New Testament, anytime you see King Herod or, or the king in Jerusalem, not a real king, a king that is serving under the authority of the Roman emperor. And so they, they go to the king and say, hey, there's a new king being born. Herod is already not a true king himself because he serves at the pleasure of the emperor. So he gets a little threatened at this idea of a new king because he's supposed to be king. Also, just so you know, Herod was not part of the royal line. Herod was not a descendant of David. So if there was a true descendant of David, Herod knew if there's a king that comes from the line of David, I'm in trouble because I don't work for the Israelites. I don't actually care. I work for Rome. My job is to keep the peace so Rome will let me live in the luxury that I live in. So Herod reasonably feels threatened by this king. And so he tries to kill the baby king. And we saw a couple weeks ago, that's where this great um, murder of young children takes place. Every male child under two years old in, the, in this middle section of Matthew chapter 2, every male child under two years old is killed because of Herod's decree. It, it's a terrible story. And, and, and you can look back two weeks ago to hear a little bit more about that. But the wise men, they came and they worshipped him. So we've talked a little bit about who they were and maybe what they saw, what they believed. Who did they believe Jesus to be? That's the question, right? They certainly believed Jesus to be a king. They brought him gifts that proclaimed royalty, like gold and frankincense. Some, some will say that myrrh, myrrh is, a, is, a, um, is used to anoint bodies for burial. Myrrh is a spice that's used to prepare a body to be buried, to fight off the smell of decay of a dead body. So, they will, so there's lots of people, and for good reason, that will see significance in there. But the wise men actually gave a prophetic gift to, to baby Jesus. Did they know that he would die? For, probably not. But they gave myrrh, which was used to prepare bodies for burial. But they also gave gold and frankincense, which proclaimed royalty. They also worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. Uh, if nothing else, these men knew that this child was a great king, a king of great authority, a king of great power that deserved worship, did 
the wise men know that he was the one and only true God. I, I don't know that. I don't think that we can say that Matthew says that. But I can tell you that they left that interaction with Jesus sitting before the Messiah, the true Son of God, and they were never the same. Look at the, the whole episode. They saw a miraculous star rise up above the home. I mean, not just ab above a nation first. That's, that's a big deal. But can you imagine, what would it even look like for a star in the sky to point out a particular home in a particular town? Stars don't do that. This is ex exceptional. This is strange. And that, so they knew that there was something supernatural, miraculous going on in this whole scenario. Now, the, the wise men were, were polytheists. That means they believed in lots of different gods. That's what Babylon did. They absorbed the gods of other nations. So do I know that for, uh, for certain that the wise men came to receive Jesus as the one true God? No, no, no. I don't think we can say that from Matthew chapter 2. But I can tell you that they saw a God who needed to be worshipped. And if they had looked deeply, more deeply in the Hebrew scriptures that they had possession of, they would have seen the uniqueness and the exclusivity of this God. Did they find it? I don't know. But it was there, and I'm going to show you where. The exclusivity of Jesus shows up all throughout the Old Testament. And, and one of the famous Christmas passages, you know, we, we read the Wiseman passage every year. We know that. We also know Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is such an important Christmas passage because you know it. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, before that, Isaiah 9.1, The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. So let's, let's start out here. This is your quick overview of Isaiah chapter 9. The people in darkness, that's Israel. The Israelites as a nation, was a nation full of darkness. They needed salvation. Darkness of their, the product of their own rebellion against God. Darkness that was related to the time of the exile. Darkness that was related to, to God removing his hand of protection and blessing from the people temporarily so that they would experience the consequences of their own rebellion. They were living in darkness and they needed light. The light shows up in the child that is born, the son who is given. And what does it say about this child? He will be the king. The government will be on the child's shoulder. And the government that the child establishes will continue forever. Will not end. It will continue to increase. It says the increase of this government, there will be no end. You know what that means? Every nation, tongue, and tribe. It means there's not a, a square inch of the whole created world over which Jesus, this child in Isaiah 9-7, is not the king. Isaiah is saying that very quickly, that this light that shows up in 9-1 for Israel is also the king of all creation. And the king of all creation that will, that will continue in his reign and in his rule forever. And then Isaiah 60, so there's your quick overview, Isaiah 9. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. This is, again, another passage about the light that comes. We know from Isaiah 9, the light is Jesus, the child that is born, who is also king. What does Isaiah 60 say about him? Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen among you. Again, Isaiah 60 starts with the nation of Israel. And Isaiah says, stand up, nation. Arise. Get excited. The light is here. The light is Jesus. He's already said that a few, uh, I mean, many chapters earlier, but already in the book, he had established the light is this child that would be born. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 60, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your, of your rising. So he says, this, is, this light isn't for you, Israel. It's not just for you. It's not just for you as Israel to hold and protect and keep to yourselves. This light that is coming from among you is coming for everybody, all nations. This is an exclusive claim of the God of the universe. 
saying, the only way to be right with me is to be in my light. And the only way to be in the light is through my son, Jesus, the baby that's being born. He goes on to say, verse 6 of chapter 60, a multitude of camels shall cover you. A multitude of camels shall cover the, the countryside of Israel. And with that multitude of camels, they shall bring gold and frankincense and the good news and the praises of the Lord. It's almost like Isaiah saw the wise men coming. It's almost like this great train of wise men from the east in Isaiah 65 and 6 that would bring the praise and the worship of the Lord and would bring gold and frankincense to be offered to this new newborn king. It's right there, predicted right there in Isaiah. So what does this mean for us? You take Isaiah 60 and, and Isaiah 9. It shows us that the nation of Israel was in darkness, that the child who is God, Emmanuel, God with us, that child would come and bring the light. The light would not just be for Israel, but for all nations, and that people would come from all nations to worship him. That's what's being fulfilled in, in Matthew 2 with the wise men. The wise men prove that Jesus is not just for the shepherds of Israel. The wise men prove that Jesus is not just the horn of salvation for Israel, as Zechariah shows. Uh, the wise men prove that Jesus is coming for all nations, not just descendants of Israel. So that means that for us, Christianity is not just for Israel. Christianity comes from a Jewish heritage, but is not just for the Jews. Jesus didn't come just for Jews. Jesus came for all nations. So that means that Christianity is exclusive and not exclusive at the same time. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Christianity is exclusive because it says Jesus is the only way. But Christianity is not exclusive to any language group, any culture, any race, any people, any, any portion of the world. So Jesus came for everybody, for every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every language group. And so like right now in our community, we have this service going on. We're, we're, we're all speaking English here. But, but you don't have to go far in our community to, to hear people worshiping, singing, speaking, and preaching in other languages. And, and right now, there's, there's churches in Spanish all over our community, and it's a beautiful thing. Right now, uh, one of our elder couples is, is preparing um, to, one of our elders is, is going to be delivering a message in Arabic to a group of Arabic speakers in our greater area. That happens, happens almost every Sunday, that there's an Arabic service in the afternoon up in Chattanooga that one of our elders is a part of leading. And it's a beautiful thing. Why? Because Spanish speakers need the gospel of Jesus. English speakers need the gospel of Jesus. Arabic speakers need the gospel of Jesus. But, but, but we live in this world that thinks, well, different cultures, different peoples, they have different viewpoints. And so, you know, at the same time that one of our elders is leading a worship service in Arabic, there was another worship service in Arabic happening right next door to us. And, and those are very different things. Because the radical exclusivity of Jesus and of the scriptures tells us that Jesus is the only way, regardless of where you came from, regardless of what language you speak. And so there are true views of God and there are false views of God. And if you go down the street from our, from our neighbor's next door to the monastery that's north on Doug Gap, to, to the, the hall across the street that says that they proclaim Jehovah, but do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Just in our street, within a mile of our building, we have three false perceptions of God that are not true, that are not consistent with the exclusive claims of Jesus as the Son of God, as the only way. Is that arrogant? Is that prideful for us as Christians to say, not if it's true. Not if Jesus is really the only way. Because what Isaiah is telling us is it's telling us that all of those other people groups, all of those other religions, they are still in the darkness. But Jesus has come to bring light. Is it arrogant for a little church in Dalton, Georgia of a couple hundred people to actually say, we believe so strongly that this is true, that we're not just going to proclaim this message here, but we're going to sponsor others to go all over the world to do it. Is it arrogant that, that we, right now, through our partnerships, are a part of worship services in Romania, 
and Hungary and Burkina Faso and and through through past relationships and historic relationships uh, in Indonesia, the Philippines, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all of these places, we have invested our, our little church to say that those in Hungary need this gospel. Those in Burkina Faso need this gospel. So we're going to send them grain so that they can proclaim the message to people that are in real physical need. And everybody in Indonesia, they need this gospel. And we're going to sponsor families that are going to go there and present this gospel. The world says this is arrogant. The world says we're prideful. How dare we think such things? But this is the message of the, of the gospel. This is the message of who God is. And see, we live in a culture that accepts parts of Christmas. We're in this season where everybody knows what Christmas is. Everybody knows a few Christmas songs. Everybody likes presents. And so there's all of this cultural activity around the popularity of Christmas. But it is the particularity of the Christ that is offensive. And so we really need to ask ourselves the question, are we leveraging the popularity of the season to present the particularity of the message of the gospel? That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is for us. That Jesus is God. This gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. The message that's been proclaimed for 2,000 years, we still believe it today. The scandal of exclusivity actually gets a little bit worse than, than light and darkness. It's actually even more intense than that. Go to Ephesians 2, and we'll go there just real quickly. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. You know, people that live in darkness have a little bit of capacity to find the light. You can kind of grope around in the darkness, and maybe you're going to find the light. But, but those of you that think that the, the Old Testament is really harsh and the New Testament is a lot nicer and a lot more merciful, just so you know, in this context, Isaiah 6 and 9 say, well, the non-believers are in darkness groping for the light, and Ephesians 2 says it even more intensely. This is what Ephesians 2 says. And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, we were, you were, I was, we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God steps in, not to a moment of our groping in the dark and trying to figure it out on our own and getting better and better and better along the way. God steps into a moment in his mercy in which we are dead. Dead people don't find light in the dark. And, and see, this is where this exclusive claim of, of Jesus, this is where we don't actually recognize how significant our problem was. If we're struggling with the claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation, we're only struggling because we don't recognize how significant our problem was before Jesus. We are not saved by our good decisions. We're not saved because we found the truth in our great journey and search for the truth. We are saved because Jesus came to make dead things living things, to make dead people living people. Dane Ortland, I read this this week, and I, I just had to share it. Dane Ortland said it like this. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people. Christ was not sent to wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or even to spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people. Christ was sent to raise dead people. The problem is not ignorance. The problem is not laziness. The problem is not immorality. The problem is deadness. And Isaiah makes it very clear that the lost are in darkness. And Paul goes a step further and say, I see your darkness. I see your darkness and I'll raise you deadness. It's not just that you and your sin are in the dark. It's that you're dead. I remember when I 
was, um, was a child. I was probably seven or eight years old. And I remember sitting on the couch with my dad. And I remember the bridge illustration. That, that's what, and it's a, it's a fantastic gospel illustration. And I remember my dad explaining to me, the chasm is so wide. You're here. God is here. And the chasm is so wide. You cannot live a life good enough. You have no capacity to jump over that chasm. And it was so powerful and it was so true to me. And I remember the day we had that conversation and the day I received Jesus as the bridge over the chasm that my sin and rebellion against God had caused. But now I recognize that the problem of the chasm was far worse than I had imagined that day. Because I was not just an incapable child on the side of a cliff trying to jump across a cliff I couldn't make. I was a dead person. And I couldn't even... I couldn't even muster one step. That's the gospel. That's the message of salvation that we have been given. And it's the message of exclusivity, of exclusivity for Afghans, for Kazakhs, for Kurds, for, for Hungarians, for Indonesians, for Fulanis, for all of these people groups that we choose to partner with to present the gospel. It's the same message for all of them. You were once dead, and you can be alive. Ephesians 2.11 says it like this, everyone that is a Gentile is separated from God, alienated from the, pro from the promises of God, hopeless, godless, and a stranger to the covenants of Israel. That's who you are. That's who you were without Jesus, separated, alienated, hopeless, godless, strangers. That's our relationship to God without Jesus. And so the, the problem is not that Jesus is one solution to this problem of ignorance or immorality, and there's lots of different ways to climb up the mountain to get to God and understand the goodness of God. That, that's not the situation we're in. We're in a situation of deadness, and there's one God who became a man, literally one religion that says the way to get to God is God. The way to get to God is not to find your path up the mountain, but for God to come down the mountain be born in a humble circumstance so that you could receive life through him. The scandal is not the exclusivity. Exclusivity makes sense if there's one God, there's one way to him. The scandal is the incarnation. That that God actually saw it fit to love his creation so much, even in our rebellion, he loved his creation so much that he descended down he came down from heaven to earth to live a humble life, be, to, to be born into a humble state. Philippians 2. I told you we'd get to Philippians 2. Let's, let's end it there. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee, that's exclusivity. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this means, this means that if you're here today and you believe in Jesus, you were once dead. And then he, by Jesus' sacrifice and by the power of the Spirit, raised you up to newness of life, to enliven your heart, to regenerate your heart so that you could believe, so that you could receive, so that you could live in response to him. We were dead and now we've been made alive. And the scandal is that the Godhead would take on human flesh. That's what the incarnation means. And we sing about it, but do we really recognize the words that we sing, the great power and the beauty of them? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. That, that the Godhead, God himself, was veiled in the limits of human flesh so that some recognized him and not all recognized him. But he was God-made flesh, 
and he was pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Light and life to all he brings. So light to those in darkness, life to those that are dead. And he brings it to all, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. This is the king of kings. The king of all nations. The Lord of lords. The Lord over all sovereign powers. And he is the king that has come for us. He's the king that we have the opportunity to worship. And I said, this changes the way we look at everybody. Because everybody around us, every single day, is created in the image of God. And they're a fallen sinner. And either they have been raised to newness of life by the sacrifice of Christ, or they haven't. And you know, we don't always see. We can't always see with our human eyes, with our fleshly eyes, we can't see who's dead and alive. But the truth from Scripture, Ephesians 2, tells us we're walking around dead people every day of our lives. And you know, the right way to treat a dead person is like they're dead. And you don't try to teach a dead person how to live better. You don't try to teach a dead person how to make better decisions, how to live a more moral life, how to be wiser, smarter. You don't educate a dead person. You tell them how to find life. Dead people need life that can only come from Jesus. And how are they going to hear? They're going to hear it from us. And they're going to hear it from us when we really, truly believe what we say we believe. That the dead can come alive through Jesus and Jesus alone. So we're going to stand, we're going to worship some more, we're going to sing. And as you sing, I want you to be reflecting in your mind about who in your life you have the opportunity to present the new life of Christ to. But let's stand and sing. Let's really worship as if this king has been raised to newness of life so that we can be raised to newness of life.